When I was a young person, like before I was a young man and I was a preteen, I, I loved watching that sitcom called Gilligan's Island. And if you've never seen this show, I can only say you're, you're simply missing out on the great sitcoms of all time. It was a story about Gilligan and the skipper, who were the crew of the USS Minnow, and they would take people out on tours and sightseeing in the ocean. And one day, they were hit by a terrible storm, and they found themselves shipwrecked. And each episode introduced itself by sing the singing of the Ballad of Gilligan's Island. And it goes something like this. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going <laughs> to repeat the words. Just sit right back, and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. The mate was a mighty sailing man, the skipper brave and sure. Five passengers set sail that day for a three-hour tour. A three-hour tour. That moment the music stopped and this bolt of lightning hit, and then the ballad continues. The weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed. If not for the courage of the fearless crew, the minnow would be lost. The minnow would be lost. I loved that show, and I loved how that song introduced us into the adventures of Gilligan and this crew. You had the millionaires, you had a movie star, you had the professor, you had the, the farm girl. It was a fascinating show, and I imagine what it would be like to be on that island surviving with them. And it was a slapstick com comedy show, and you had Gilligan with all the laughs there for us. That show was interesting, and it was fun to watch on the screen. But the question I want to raise for us this morning is this. What happens when the storms of life leave the safe confines of a television screen and come crashing in upon our own lives? What do we do when these unexpected storms upend everything we thought we believed and we think our lives will never be the same? How should we handle it and process it when we find our hope evaporating? My friends, this is an important question to ask or series of questions because this is what I know to be true about your life as well as mine. It is a fact that we will encounter storms in our life, not just simply atmospheric storms, but all kinds of storms that threaten to undo our life. And what do we do in those times? And to press the question a little bit further, what do we do when it seems like God might be asleep at the wheel? When not simply our hope is evaporating, but our faith is as well. And we begin to articulate the question that our lips might not dare to utter. Does God even care? Those are the questions we're going to contemplate today as we look at a fascinating episode from the life of Jesus. It's an episode in which he got on a boat with his disciples and they set sail across the Sea of Galilee. And these sailors that were with him, these disciples, were mighty sailing men. Most of them had spent their life on the Sea of Galilee. They were storm-hardened fishermen. And so storms were nothing new to them. But these mighty sailing men, brave and sure, found their courage, their fearless courage, evaporating. And they were wondering what was going to happen next. And everything they thought they believed went out the window. What's going to be more astonishing than what we see is not simply this storm and how they handled it, but what they did, or rather what they experienced once they were rescued from this storm and found themselves safe on the other side. 
So my friends, we're going to call our, our, our message today the master and commander of the storms of life. We're going to look at just a few short verses from the Gospel of Luke. And this account is fascinating. Three of the four ancient historical biographers of Jesus included this story in their account. And they wanted us to know about it because of who it shows us about Jesus, or what it shows us about Jesus and, and who he is. And so as we get ready to look at this passage, I want us to pause for just a moment and, and to ask the Lord to, to be the one who teaches us this day. Let's pray together. Lord, every one of us knows what it's like to experience the storms of life. All of us know what it's like to feel that sense of panic, that our life is, is falling out of control. And at times we wonder where you are and how we should proceed. Some of us have gone through these storms and it has left us bitter. And for others of us, our, our faith has been shipwrecked. And for others of us, we're just left with a lot of questions. Would you meet us today wherever we are and help us to, to see Jesus afresh in this and help us to understand what it is that this ancient biographer Luke is wanting to get across for us to see. Help us to understand that we all stand desperately in need of your grace. And so we pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage, as I mentioned, is, is recorded for us in three different accounts. And so in, as we go through this account, I'm actually going to pull from these other gospel accounts of Jesus and kind of weave the narrative together. And as we do so, I want us to be on the lookout for a couple questions that are going to be raised in this passage. One is the question about the faith of the disciples. And I want us, in a sense, to put ourselves in the place of those disciples and hear this question of faith asked about us. The other question is a question about identity and the identity of Jesus. Who is this man? So let's jump into the text and see what Luke and the gospel writers have to say. Chapter 8, verse 22. One day he, that is Jesus, one day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and other boats were with him. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. Now here Jesus is, is getting away from the crowds. He, he was teaching and proclaiming. He had people left and right who were coming to hear him, who wanted to speak with him. He was doing amazing, jaw-dropping things. And, and like us, he got tired. And so he, he sets out to sail across the sea with his disciples. And we're told by Mark, the other gospel writer, that other boats jumped in and sailed along with them. That's an interesting detail that we need to know because there were other witnesses to what was going on in this moment. But as they sat across the sea, Jesus is tired, and he just falls asleep. Verse 23, And a windstorm came down on the lake, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. And they were filling with water and were in danger. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Here we're told a windstorm came down on the lake. When the gospel writer Matthew tells us this happened, he uses a word Seismos in Greek, from which we get seismic activity. Uh, literally, it can be translated as an earthquake or a tempest. And he said there was a mega seismos. There was a, a great storm that took place. It was, it was earth shattering. And, and the boat was being swamped by waves. It was filling with water. But Jesus, we're told again, is asleep on a cushion. Now, it's interesting how in the scriptures, storms are sometimes used to describe 
these trials in life that we experience. For example, in Psalm 65, the poet cries out, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up. Over and over again, we're, we're given these kind of prayers to pray. And the disciples could have prayed something like this. And maybe they were. But nothing was changing. And the situation was deteriorating rapidly. And someone said, let's go wake up Jesus. And so we're told in verse 24, they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Do you not care that we are perishing? I don't know exactly what they were expecting Jesus to do. I imagine that they probably wanted him to use his special connection with God to, to dial in a divine favor perhaps. But they come to him and they use this interesting word, Master. Master. They, they could have called him Lord, or they could have called him Rabbi, but they use this word Master, which is interesting. I think maybe when they look back on this, they probably would have said, we didn't really know what we were saying when we used that word, because obviously we weren't believing what it meant. But they raised the question, do you not care that we are perishing? And that's the question, isn't it? Whenever the storms of life hit, when we lose a sense of control, when everything seems to be upended, is that not the question we have? Not simply, where is God in the midst of it, but does he care? And here the disciples ask Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? We're told in verse 24, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and said to the sea, peace, be still. Now, this is really interesting. I don't know that they were really expecting Jesus to do that. But this is just kind of a matter-of-fact reporting here. He woke, he rebuked the wind and the, and the raging waves. He said, peace, be still. Those of us who've been around the teachings of Jesus and his story are not surprised to see him do this. But let's just say that one of us did something like this. Let's say that we're on a boat and my friend Jimmy over here uh, gets up and he just stands up and he says to the storm, peace, be still. I'd be kind of scratching our head and say, Jimmy, what are you doing? Get the bail in the water out. That's what we need. I mean, who stands up and says to a storm, peace, be still? Who rebukes the weather? I love what one commentator said. Philip Graham Ryken, in commenting on this passage, said, Jesus spoke to the storm as if it had to answer to his authority. Isn't that interesting? Now, Jesus has done some amazing things, right? The scriptures call them miracles or signs. And these things left people's mouths hanging wide open in wonder and amazement. But here Jesus gets up in the midst of the storm that's threatening to undo these sailors. And he speaks as if the storm had to obey him. And so as, as Luke tells it, he awoke, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. One second, they were in danger of being capsized, being sunk by this storm. The, the sea is raging. The, the thunder and lightning are hitting. These, these tempests that, that came down upon this Sea of Galilee, this time threatened to destroy them. In one moment, that's where they were. The next moment, Jesus speaks. And the next moment, 
It's quiet and still. If we combine a little bit of what the other gospel accounts say, we learn that he awoke, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and said to the sea, peace be still, and they ceased, and there was a calm. The way Matthew puts it, there was a great calm. Not only was there a great storm, but now, once Jesus has spoken, there's a great calm. They're standing there in complete silence with just the heavy breathing of one another in their ears, perhaps the blood of their hearts still thumping in their ears, the gentle lap of the boat against this glass sea. Jesus asked the question, verse 25, he said to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? According to Jesus, I'm sorry, according to the disciples, they had reason to freak out, right? <laughs> These mighty sailing men, brave and sure, found their faith, or their, their, their courage evaporating. Their faith is wavering. They wake up Jesus, say, don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus gets up, rebukes the storm. It falls dead silent. And he asked them, where is your faith? According to Jesus' thinking, what's the big deal? Why are you freaking out? We're also told by the gospel writer Mark, he asked the question, why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? Why are you so afraid? I remember when I was preparing this message, I was talking to my wife about this issue, and I, asked, I said, this is the question that Jesus asked them. Why are you so afraid? And I asked her what she thought about that. She said, oh, that's easy. They were afraid because they weren't in control. That's a pretty good answer. I was proud of my wife for that one. <laughs> Isn't that it, though? When the storms of life hit us, our life gets turned upside down, we are revealed as being powerless, aren't we? We, we lose a sense of whatever control we thought we had. And so Jesus asks, where's your faith? But he also asks, why are you so afraid? We're told that they were afraid and they were filled with great fear. There was a great storm. Now there's great calm. And now, <laughs> now that the danger is over, there's great fear filling them. Why is that? Tim Keller in his book, The King's Cross, said, why were they now more terrified in the calm than they were in the storm? And he answers, because Jesus was as unimaginable as the storm itself. The storm had immense power. Jesus had infinitely more. So that fear turned to marvel. And we're told they started saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even wind and water and they obey him? I mean, let's just use my friend Jimmy again. If, if we were in a boat with Jimmy and he stood up and said, peace be still and a raging storm stopped, we'd be going, whoa, who is this? We didn't know you had this kind of power, right? 
But in the thinking of the disciples, they're trying to, to connect the dots. They had been following Jesus. They had given their life to his teachings and to replicating them and to go wherever he went. They had high thoughts about Jesus. But now they're asking another question. Who is this that he even commands the winds and the waves and they obey him? And the reason they're asking this question is because they knew their scriptures. They had sung the Psalms that told them exactly who it is who stills the waters of the storms of life. Look at this little collection of verses from the Psalms. The psalmist writes, O God of our salvation, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. At your rebuke, the waters fled. At your sound, they took to flight. You see, the disciples knew exactly who had the power to rebuke storms. It was God himself, the one who has all power. And now they just experienced Jesus rebuking the storm. And they're scratching their head, and they're asking the question, who is this man who can do these sorts of things? So my friends, why does, why does Luke want us to know about this? I mean, he knows it's crazy to tell a story about someone who can stand up and rebuke the weather, and it obeys him. I mean, no one does that. So why does he take valuable time and resources to record this short account for us? And why did the other writers of the Gospels of Jesus do the same? Well, I think they want us to ask the question, who is this man? Who is Jesus? And this is a good question for us to ask as well. You see, the disciples thought very highly of Jesus when they entered that boat, right? <laughs> they had hopes that he was the Messiah, they had hopes that he was the chosen one that their whole people had anticipated that would come, that would set this world to right. And they had thought highly about him, but they found their thoughts now woefully inadequate. Who is this man? And that's a good question for us to ask, because, my friends, it's easy for us to speak very highly of Jesus, but not highly enough. It's easy for us to say, yeah, Jesus was a great teacher and he did some amazing things. But we don't connect the dots to understand that this man is God coming to visit us in the flesh. To forge the way of salvation. So I think Luke and the gospel writers want us to ask the question, who is this man? But they also want us to answer the question, where is our faith? Where is our trust that's a good word for what faith is. It's trust. When you board an airplane, you may not know the captain of that airplane personally, but you trust that the airlines have adequately vetted and make sure this guy is trained to fly that plane, right? So we place our trust, we place our faith in that system that helps us get from one place to another. Where is our faith? What are we trusting in? And I think one of the lessons from this is that it's easy to have our faith, quote unquote, in God when we think we're in control of everything. But what happens when the storms of life hit? 
and all of a sudden we realize we have very little control. That's a really good indication of where our trust is, in, is at, where, where we place it in. So if I could maybe summarize what I think Luke is getting at, I think it would be something like this. We have every reason to boldly trust in Jesus, the master and commander of the storms of life. The disciples called Jesus their master, and he was. They didn't understand exactly what they were saying in that moment, I don't think. But Jesus was their master. He is the master of the universe. But he's also the one Luke wants us to know, as well as the other gospel writers, that can command the storms of life, and they obey. And so I have just a couple of points of application as we think through how to apply this to our lives. And the first point of application I think that we should do is simply this. Let's develop a healthy theology of the storms of life. What do I mean by that? As I talk with people, and especially as I talk as a pastor to people who, who tell me stories about their life and the things that they go through and what they're wrestling with, I find oftentimes it's the case that we... We find ourselves surprised that God would let us experience difficulty in this world. We want our lives to be, as the Christian radio station says, safe and fun for the whole family. And that instinct to want that is not bad. That desire to want that, that's, it was meant to be that way from the beginning. And it will one day be that again when Jesus makes all things new. But now... In a world set at odds against its creator, not only do we experience difficulties in this life, all of life in one sense can be described as a storm. And if we come with a desire for things to be safe and fun and let that morph into a demand and say, God, I will only acknowledge you, I'll only worship you, I'll only love you if you don't let me enter into the storms of life, then you will ditch your faith. You will put it in yourself, and you will probably become bitter. For those of us who call ourselves Christians, we follow a man who is described as acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows. We follow a crucified king. Jesus was an exempt, and we won't be as well. In fact, on the night that he was betrayed, he told his disciples this. In this trouble, and I'm sorry, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And Jesus is telling him, look, you're going to have trouble. I find it fascinating. He says this on the night that he knows he's going to be betrayed and handed over and tortured and crucified. He says, I have overcome the world. The Apostle Paul later would write these words to a group of Christians living in Rome. He says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We know in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That all things means all things, my friends. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And I might even say the painful and the difficult. God works all those things together for the good. He is the one who is sovereign over all. So even if he allows us to enter into the storms of life, he nevertheless rules them all and makes sure that they turn out for our ultimate good. I love this quote by a writer named Alan Redpath. He said, there is no circumstance, no trouble, 
no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. And if it has come that far, it has come with great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment. That's why when we grasp this truth, we can understand something of what James, the brother of Jesus, said when he tells us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. I've often been baffled by that as a young believer. Why would you count it joy when you encounter trials? Aren't you supposed to count it joy when you get out of the trial? That's how I normally work. That's my default. But here he wants us to know that when we encounter trials, they function in many ways as a test. That that may not be the reason why you go through them, but they do function as a test. And if it's a test, there's three things present, right? There's the test itself, the person administering the test, and the person taking the test. And James tells us, look, you need to have the eyes to be able to see that even in the midst of the storms of life, the trials, the difficulties, God is at work. And one of the things he wants to do in your life is to produce endurance. He wants to produce a spiritual stamina in you. He wants to grow your faith, your trust in him. Someone has said, sometimes God calms the storm. Sometimes he lets the storm The storms rage, and he calms his child in the midst of the storm. My friends, we need to have a well-developed, healthy theology or view of the storms of life. Jesus went through them. We will go through them. The question is, is how do we remain anchored? And that's the second point of application for us. (laughs) Let's anchor our hope in Jesus, our master and commander. Jesus himself was with his disciples in the midst of this storm. Jesus wasn't worried. He was fast asleep. But that wasn't the greatest storm he would face. Even though that was the most terrifying thing his disciples had ever faced, the worst storm of their lives, many of whom had spent their entire lives on that Sea of Galilee fishing, even though that was a great storm, a mega storm. That wasn't the greatest storm that Jesus was to face. On that night, he was with his disciples, and he told them, you will have trouble in this world, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He, in a brilliant stroke of his majesty and sovereignty and power, gave up power and let the worst that men can do to him take place. And as the religious leaders And the Roman authorities conspired to put Jesus to death. God was at work behind the scenes, laying upon him the sins of his people. And Jesus bowed his head, and he leaned into that storm. And he took the brunt of it upon his broad shoulders. My friends, if we want to know, does Jesus care? That answer has been forever definitively handled and answered for us on the cross. He does care. Not simply does he care, he loves us and gave himself for us. He endured the greatest storm, experiencing the judicial wrath of a holy God in the place of people like you and me. And he came through that on the other side and rose again from the dead 
as the first fruits of God's new creation. Tim Keller, again in his book, The King's Cross, writes, if the sight of Jesus bowing his head into that ultimate storm is burned into the core of your being, you will never say, God, don't you care? And if you know that he did not abandon you in that ultimate storm, what makes you think he would abandon you in the much smaller storms you're experiencing right now? Someday, of course, of course, someday, of course, he will return and still all storms for eternity. So my friends, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews said this, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Wherever that race might take us, whatever storms we go through, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We might be able to alter these words a little bit. I might be careful on how I put that. We don't ever want to alter the words of Scripture. We might be able to put them uh, in a slightly different way in connection with our story. In the midst of the storms of life, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us anchor our trust in him, our master and commander of the storms of life. I've shared the story with you of this brilliant writer by the name of J. Todd Billings. He wrote this book called Rejoicing and Lament. And it's a collection of his thoughts in the wake of being diagnosed with incurable cancer. And he tells us as he opens up that book that he, he was reeling from this storm that had intruded into his life. And the, the thick of the fog of this storm was so thick he could not see clearly. And he found himself at church the next Sunday and he was sharing with his church family the diagnosis and he received well wishes from his friends and, and, and promptings for prayer and support. But he said the thing that anchored him in that moment was a card that a 15-year-old autistic girl gave to him. And that card simply said, get well soon. Jesus loves you. God is bigger than your cancer. He said he appreciated this so much. She didn't deny the presence of cancer. She didn't say it wasn't a big deal. She didn't even say Jesus is with you in the midst of that. She simply says, God is bigger than your cancer. The disciples needed to understand that God in the person of Jesus was with them in that storm, and he was bigger than that storm. J. Todd Pillings goes on in this book to really reflect on the significance of that word that was spoken to him by that 15-year-old autistic girl and made it a meditation on the first question and answer that comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. The question asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer begins like this, that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What beautiful words that anchor our soul. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. Not in the storms, but in me you may have peace. As we come to this table, the Lord's table together in just a few moments, we're going to sing a couple songs. One song is the song Cornerstone, one of the favorites we have here. And in these uh, words we find this truth expressed. When darkness seems to hide his face. I rest 
on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. What is that veil? It's that darkness around that we can't see clearly in. But we confess that we have our souls anchored in the hope of Jesus. We rest in his unchanging grace. And then the song continues. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. My friends, may we anchor our hope in Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the master and commander of the storms of our life.